Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur, with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, everyone. Hey, I have a show I think you're really going to learn a lot from. Our guest today can talk on anything. I've known him for years. I've been in uh, dive bars in Bangkok and barbecue pits. Barbecue pits, I don't know if that's a term, down in Austin. Our guest today is a very successful repeat entrepreneur. And over the past five, 10 years has been really helping people build, especially entrepreneurs, build their own personal financial lives, getting ready forever, getting ready, using the assets that you have, planning, understanding, and how to actually use the financial markets. He's an amazing trader, though I do make fun of a public comment he made back in 2018 about the impending collapse of crypto. Other than that, actually, he's now probably a lot more sophisticated and more knowledgeable about crypto than I am now. <laughs> um, but our guest today been an engineer. He's owned multiple companies, installing high-end video systems. He's built some cool businesses. He's an entrepreneur's, repeat entrepreneur's entrepreneur. But his financial course I've taken, and it really helped me up my game from just being able to make money with businesses to actually understanding what I can do with those finances over time and how to get a better understanding of what it all meant and how to plan long-term for it. I know our guest talks a lot about understanding what your finance, to him, the finances are not inherently anything. It's what you plan to do with them. That's so important. And I think this is something we've hit on from a lot of our guests is understanding what you want to do is so much more important about your entrepreneurial journey than just optimizing what you have. So today's guest is going to be all over the conversation just because I know it. He has this amazing newsletter where he dives deep into some really cool financial subjects. So without much more rambling on my part, everyone, I would like to introduce my friend, Henry Das. Henry, Thank you so much for coming on the show. So glad to have you on the show. It's really cool. I've known you for years. So you've been someone who, as I've been diving into what we can do on the podcast and talking about what entrepreneurs should be looking at, not just in growing their businesses, but in who they are in their own journey as being entrepreneurs, you've someone, you're someone who I've kept in the back of my head because like I beta tested your financial literacy course for entrepreneurs a while ago, actually. Really, it was a couple of years ago, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lot has, a lot has changed. A lot has changed. And what's funny is I keep hearing, you know, I know I've failed numerous times as an entrepreneur to really do anything other than plan for an exit or figure this out. In going through your course, even though I probably wasn't your, not probably, I wasn't the best student in any shape or form in your course. I definitely learned a lot and have slowly, as I always call it, incremental progress, directionally correct mm-hmm. in taking in some of these things. Well, uh, the okay, then. Get 1% yeah. better each day, and that's good. And eventually you yeah. get there. 
building up that cash flow statement and all the other financial statements is better understand. What later on the show, I definitely want to go deeper into sort of how entrepreneurs should look at investing in financial planning that's separate from slightly the typical high-end person, or not high-end, but person earning a higher income. But first, you and I have had drinking conversations late into in various countries around the world. That we have. But can you share a little bit about where you are now in your entrepreneurial journey? Sure. I'm actually at a little bit of a crossroads. It's interesting. It's not uncharted or unfamiliar territory since I estimate I have reinvented myself 10 times in 40 years. It is a, and even reinvented myself before I became an entrepreneur, which I did 30 years ago. Right. So I had 10 years as in what I respectfully call cubicle world before I became an entrepreneur. But once I did, I never really looked back. And it's it's exciting and it's also a bit terrifying. So as you noted from reading my twice monthly newsletter, the thing I call the DOS yes. FQ update, I turned 62. I'm officially a senior. Yippee for me. And not only that, I recently moved out of the New York metropolitan area to what can only be described as rural Connecticut. So I'm in Northwestern oh, okay. Connecticut. You're a Jersey guy. <laughs> yeah, I was in Jersey. I was in Manhattan. I was in Scarsdale. As it's turned out, we have, since I've been married, we've moved every 10 years, plus or minus one year. And looking, and it wasn't really planned that way, but looking backwards on that, I actually think it's a really positive thing because it gives you an opportunity not only to reinvent yourself, but to throw out the old and cherry pick out of the old what you want and wipe away that detritus. Start mm-hmm. over in a new place with new experiences and new people. I kind of think it keeps you fresh. So now here I am as a Connecticut Yankee here, and I've been doing little things. For instance, one of the first things I did when we got here, and we really didn't get settled until April, even though we bought the house in um, December. It took us a long time to move, 30 years of stuff. Yeah. The first thing I did spontaneously is I went through my email And I started unsubscribing myself from stuff that I've been getting for probably close to 30 years. And when when I started my first business in 91, there was no internet. Internet really didn't come around until there were dial-up services. There were things like AOL and Genie. And there were EDI systems, which are electronic systems that were private. So if you had a vendor, you could send your purchase orders. But otherwise... It wasn't anything near what it was like now. 1995, I got an ISDN line. It was 1.5 megabits. And it actually was uh, split. So I actually had an ISDN router in my apartment in New York City so that I could share the internet from my home through my office, which was six blocks away on Broadway. In fact, I had the first wireless router in my neighborhood. Think about this. If you go into anywhere in New York City and and go to look at the list of router, there are hundreds, right? Yeah. They were all sharing that space. When you went to my Wi-Fi, there was one. There was mine. It was the only one in the neighborhood. So that's going back. And that was really the, the beginning of what's now been like a 25-year evolution, going away from paper newspapers to now instantaneously inundated with data. So I've got email addresses. I have 14 active email addresses, some which go back to that 1995. And I said, I took a cold, hard look and said, do I still need to get this 
thing. It's an interesting trip through different stages of your life because it's you start to remember why you signed up for this. And then you say, oh, yeah, that was 15 years ago when I needed this. I needed it as a one time thing. And now I unsubscribe myself just to remove this detritus from my life. And one of the things that I learned, which was really interesting, is some of this stuff is really sticky. That no matter how many times you try to unsubscribe from this letter, it's not going away. It's like the Terminator. It just will not stop. It just will not stop. (laughs) It just won't. So that was an interesting exercise, but it was, there was also a little exercise in just understanding how these marketeers work. Eventually you get to the point where you just got a blacklist. You're just not getting the message from me that I don't want to be part of this thing anymore. So little things like that. And then they grow to bigger things, looking at other parts of your life. So to answer your original question, I've been a serial entrepreneur. I've been a business coach for about the last 10 years. I've been selling Mm -hmm. my FQ course for the last couple of years. And I've decided that with certain exceptions, I need to pivot away from that. For coaching, I'm really like not taking on new clients. Although I got an email from an old client who had a couple of babies and sold her business and now is interested in getting back into the world. She sent me a note literally yesterday wanting to re-engage. I have to have a conversation with her and figure out what the terms of that deal will be. But otherwise, yeah, I've had a nice run with the coaching, but I'm not all that interested in marketing that anymore. It's exhausting. Setting up funnels on LinkedIn and doing this and doing that. Right. It's like enough. The FQ course is good. I'm oversubscribed with that. So I don't I'm not interested in taking on any more clients with that either. So I'm at the point for the first time in my life, now that I'm a senior, to where I'm not really selling anything, you know, which is really weird after 40 years of telling selling. I feel like I'm not selling anything. I'm taking a course to become a licensed realtor in Connecticut, Um, having lunch with uh, two friends on uh, Thursday. One, just through an odd circumstance, a a friend of mine who was in the same EO forum that started, if people are familiar with Entrepreneurs Organization, we started in 1998. So Chris was in my EO forum and then he left after a few years. And I lost, last time I talked to him was 10 years ago. And sure enough, he shows up on the Zoom call with 160 other students taking the doing the 60 hours that you have to do in the state of Connecticut in order to get your real estate license. And so <laughs> I'm doing that, not for the purposes of you know, showing houses to people, but to peel away the curtain to get inside the real estate business. Because I've done real estate over the years and built spec houses. I'm looking, I'm not necessarily looking for a business, but another money-making opportunity within that arena. Because it's fun, it's interesting, and again, it's well-covered territory. I like that because this is one of the things I also say as entrepreneurs, we're always, you're constantly being pushed to think of your one company and keep moving and try and get it so you exit. But most of us have lots of left, right, downs, occasional ups. Zigzags, yeah, exactly. It's a serpentine sort of life. It's not a straight line. And like you, I've never been content to just have one gig going. Maybe I'm just too ADD or whatever, or I have too many ideas, some of which I probably shouldn't have executed when I've written about that. But it's the fuel that keeps that fire burning because I have no intention of retiring. My opinion is as long as there's somebody out there who's willing to pay me, I ain't retired. But I'm a little less thrilled about having clients. I just, yes. I, I, yeah, I'm just keeping it real. I can make a living between trading the stock market 
right? And investing in real estate, I can make a perfectly good living until they carry me out in a box. And I'll only need to really deal with people. Certainly in trading, I don't have to deal with people at all. It's just a, it's just a big nebulous crowd that's out there moving prices. As we're talking here on this July day, I think the Dow oh, yeah. is down like a thousand points. So of course, I, saw it was I start getting, uh, yeah, I start getting peppered with messages. In fact, a really good friend of mine said to me, texted me two hours ago, should I take out some cash? And I was tempted to write a little late, dude. I've been writing for weeks about how frothy this market is, which is not to say that I'm right. We're going to talk about how I was wrong in a little bit. But instead, I, I just wrote him a quick one-liner that said, if it makes you feel better, right? Yeah. If it makes you feel better, take some money off the table. It is a little bit wackadoodle out there. Let's just tie in a little bit because I think it's interesting. You definitely, you, know, you made fun of the whole concept of retiring and I'll point people in the show notes down below to your newsletter because that's something else I wanted to. I remember you started off with just a couple of interesting points that are going out there. You're now really taking some strong stances and actually some deep thinking on tax structure and other things. Using, since I did the same thing in my book, I use my life as a model. And I, something comes up, just happened with the guy talking about Social Security. And, and this is, I didn't share this in the newsletter, but I joined a golf club, right? And I'm a golfer. <laughs> I've never, right. I, this is terrible, like, You've used Marx, privilege. Uh, Groucho Marx, not Marx, Groucho <laughs> Marx, line on me in the past. I the have, DCs, and, so. I, and I actually violated, I joined a club that would have me as a member. It's a local golf club. It's a really interesting thing that I'm learning. It turned out to be not particularly expensive compared to, it's not a hundred thousand, there is a hundred thousand dollar a year golf club, uh, or a hundred thousand dollar buy-in course. This is not, this is very modest. It's a nice course. And the nice thing about it is you don't have to make a tea time. You just have to show up, but I'm only a weekday member. And so I met the guy that I found this group of guys who plays like every Wednesday and they gamble a little. I won 15 bucks the first week. I lost 14 bucks the other day, very modest stuff, but it keeps it interesting. And he was the guy who I've known for two weeks who said, well, when are you going to collect your social security? I said, when I'm 70, which is what I wrote about in my book. And he said, no, dude, you need to take it now. I took it at 62 and he's 66 now. And I know he doesn't need the money because I can, you can just tell, but those little events that occur that dare I say a lot of people would not make a thing out of it, but I'm like, I'd latched right onto that and said, this is something that I can share from my personal experience that readers of almost any age can empathize with, right? These are life decisions that everyone is going to have to face. And it was off my radar. I wasn't thinking about social security. Yeah. I said, I'll get the maximum benefit at the age of 70. I don't need the money now. I'll just wait till then. And he completely set my thinking on its head, me, I got to do a lot of research. I've even done more research since then that I'll write about in my next newsletter or somewhere down the line about other things that I discovered as I peeled back the onion. And the, the meta point of this is that we, and this is a policy statement, a real indictment of humanity, but people are, in the internet age, unlike 30 years ago when we read the New York Times or we watched the a journal. single news yeah. channel, we're inundated with headlines, and as a result of it, it's squeezing out the bandwidth that's necessary for us to really do deep work on this 
to look past it to understand exactly what's going on. And that I see it all the time and I talk to people and they're regurgitating headlines to me. And I'm like, no, read paragraph 32. That's where the, you know, Warren Buffett said, you want to read company reports? He said, skip all the crap, read the footnotes. The footnotes, the stuff that's in eight point Helvetica, all the gold is in the footnotes. It's not all that much. It might be two inches if you add it all up on a 20 page report. That's where the gold is. But if you're just stuck looking at the stuff that's 24 point, you miss all that. Anyway, went on a rant. No, it is funny because the rise of the news aggregators on top of the news providers, it's really funny. The headlines sometimes get rewritten from, oh, there may be evidence in this controlled thing to something. That's Mm -hmm. like the scientific study. Then like the mainstream news has, well, this may actually may to the aggregator is you can live forever if you eat Kit Kats 24-7. You know, it's just like... (laughs) I sure hope, I, as a type 2 diabetic, I sure hope that's true. But a lot of it's just clickbait, right? Every yeah. once in a while I click on something and then I just shake my head. Oh my God, I can't believe I clicked on this clickbait. I mean, it's almost calories you know, or empty oh, calories. It's empty calories. Yep. Well, so. okay. You're here, you're in your transition, you're playing around delving deeper into the real estate space to see if there's something more deeper than just being on the edges. You're getting rid of a lot of empty news calories from emptying out. You're realizing how people evaluate financial planning risks is all out of whack. When you said someone, yeah, I'm pretty certain he did. I'm like, wait, you're a private member. You're a member of a private golf club. I'm almost guaranteed (laughs) <laughs> that you're okay. You're any member of a almost. Yeah, I mean, yes, I, I, well, you know what? There's, there's, as I said in my book, there's a big difference between being rich and having a lot of money, right? Yes. And I find that there's a lot of folks that I, I come a, across in, in my course or in other places that are really focused on just accumulating wealth, but there's no end game. What's the purpose of this, right? You can't take it with you. You're mentioning Groucho Marx. I forgot who said you can't take it with you, but it's somebody from that vintage. And it really is true. It's a tool, right? And it is one of a gazillion different tools. I own a lot of actual tool tools. In fact, I had a problem with my car. I got a flat tire because I live on a dirt road. And I realized that I don't have the tools necessary to actually change a flat tire. Now, I've changed many a flat tire in my day, but in my middle age, I call AAA, right? Yeah. But I said, that's not going to work based on where I live in the middle of nowhere. And the car doesn't have a spare. So I had to go to Home Depot and buy a jack. And I had to go buy a lug wrench, even though there's one in the car that's always a crappy one that's in the car. And I was very proud of myself that I took the wheel off and I left the thing jacked up in my driveway and I drove it down to the mom and pop tire place. And for 12 bucks, he fixed it. And I came back and I stuck it back on. That was the first thing I did on a Monday morning, two hours of my time. Now I own those tools, right? And Mm -hmm. those tools can be, will will likely be used again because I don't imagine it's the last flat tire that I'm ever going to have. But otherwise, they're basically going to collect dust for a while. 
But yeah. if they sit around too long and collect a little too much dust, then you have to look at that, much like I'm doing with the newsletters, and decide, do I really need this in my life, right? Do you? The same yeah. rules apply to money. You're going to accumulate money. There is an end point. You don't have to be, if your goal is to be Jeff Bezos so you can build your own rocket ship company <laughs> so that you can fly for 10 minutes to the outer edges of space. If that's your Jim Collins BHAG, do that. But really, for how many people is that like a thing? It's funny because I know in just thinking back to your course, a lot of times you talked about what you were going to use the financial resources for. Why are we doing this? One, the business, but financially, why are you collecting or gathering these resources, this concept of what you're doing so I'd be curious as how you think people should be thinking about the financial capabilities they're generating, the knowledge, the tools, but then also just the actual assets. There's a certain point where you, where as you accumulate assets, where you really don't need any more mm -hmm. from any objective measure. At a certain point, and we should all hope to get to there, once you get past there, you're really just showing off. Right. And that's fine. That's something that you have to determine where that tipping point is to where you're just showing off about it. But there are certainly needs, basic needs that, that you need to deal with. You got kids, you got to pay for college, right? If you're getting older like me and you're a senior and you say to yourself, oh, you know what? Maybe I do want to retire. And by retire, that means I'm never going to earn another nickel by going out and doing something. Then you have to extrapolate that out and, and almost do a little Monte Carlo exercise to say, am I going to be okay? Or am I going to wake up at 75 and realize that, oh my God, uh, I outlived my money? And that'll mm -hmm. wake you up into a cold sweat. So there's a lot of mechanical stuff. But then there's more emotional things. Like uh, one of the things that really worries me is the gamification of money. It's the way I describe it, right? Yeah. Used to be relegated to just Vegas and then Atlantic City or other places across the globe. Now, uh, I don't even know if there's a state in the union that doesn't have, I think, Some I, think form of I think it's Hawaii is the only place that doesn't even have a lottery, that doesn't have any sort of form of gambling. And some yeah. places have all sorts. Over Memorial Day weekend, I went to Mohegan Sun, and <laughs> the place was jammed. I went out there to play golf with a friend of mine who has like a, a membership there, and we played in the pouring rain. But we stayed at the casino, and $400 a night at the casino, really? And there were just people everywhere. No valet service, no nothing. Everything was very hands-off, yet there were thousands of people there, and an AAU volleyball tournament, just like pre-COVID. So on the one hand, it was nice to see, but on the other hand, it all seemed a little bit premature to me. Too and there's bad. people, I didn't use any of the gaming machines because I really don't gamble much anymore. Every once in a while, I play craps. But otherwise, no. Again, it's a tool that I'm going to use in my case, for its intended purpose, which is to make my life easier. Pay for the kids' school, pay for trips. If I want to have a nice meal, pay for my fancy-schmancy, not-so-fancy-schmancy golf place. Some cigars, although I have a client who sends me, he's in Costa Rica, and he sends me Cubans every Christmas and pretty much takes me the whole year to smoke those. Yeah, I look at it in the grand scheme, and I say my needs are not objectively modest, but they're, they've been pretty much the same for the 30 years that we've been married. We live, we have a nice little life. We don't go crazy with things. We like our life the way that it is, and we don't feel like we're missing out on anything. And that's important. Well, okay. Then for the audience to be listening to this and wanting to achieve the same way, let's talk like where you would start 
and then maybe talk about some of the tactics you use on the broader sense with your finances. So where would someone start if, look, you want to have a good life, you want to use this. And I like the way you say it because I talk about it's an incremental benefit. It's you're smoothing out the edges, you're reducing some of the stress. Yes, there are levels and levels and it's this infinite game out there at times it feels, but I like that. Where should an entrepreneur who's somewhere hitting around, let's just say around seven figures, just on that kind of cost, think they're the world. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, having a million dollar business ain't as cool as it sounds. (laughs) Sure sounded really cool when I didn't have it. And now that I have it, it's like the Peggy Lee. Is that all there is? Another another anachronistic, I can hear your audience is Googling. Who the F is Peggy Lee? Well, (laughs) we seem to have a barbell. Like when I look at the stats and look at comments that people send in, you're not that much older than me. So let's just put us the above 50 crowd. So one Uh end of the barbell. And then, yes, we do have a lot of people on the early end that like the DC. Our our grandchildren? Our our unborn grandchildren? Just put it this way. The actor, it's not Michelle Pfeiffer. It's, it's. Oh, it's Diane. No. Who is Peggy Lee in that movie? Because she was amazingly beautiful. Oh, and uh, you're talking about the Fabulous Baker Boys? Because it's Nicolas Cage is the... Is oh, the, no, you're thinking of Peggy Sue got married. That was oh, um, Kathleen Turner. You're right. Yeah. Kathleen Turner. Yeah, and she I was, thought at the end of it, because it's her reflection. Yes. Sorry. Um, you know what? I'm mixing endings. That's okay. I like the Michelle Pfeiffer riff because I was thinking of the fabulous Baker Boys. Peggy yes. Lee, for your uninitiated audience, was was a very famous singer back in the 40s and the 50s. And mm-hmm. she sang a song called Is That All There Is? Mm-hmm. Right? And it's true. What you, When we were talking before we went live, I was thinking of this other concept that a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, ignore. And I call it the entrepreneurial discount. Because yes. as an entrepreneur, you are working at a discount. You just are. We talked about how people don't pay themselves what they're worth for the time. If they had to replace themselves, they couldn't do it for the money that they're taking out of a business. Certainly, as you're ramping up, even a seven-figure business. And remember, over 30 million businesses in the U.S. only less than 4% of them will ever achieve a million dollars top line in a single year. Yep. So that is rarefied air. Now, if you're running, and I've had some clients in the past who were running seven-figure businesses with those kind of margins. And even so, they were not paying themselves a wage that was commensurate with the replacement value of who they were. In baseball, mm-hmm. they call it war, wins of, wins above replacement, right? What do you mean to the team greater than someone was replacing you, right? It's one of these new yeah. fancy Bill James statistics. We had a guy on, Aaron Harris, who was talking about, he basically measures himself. Again. That's how he measures his success as a CEO of his company. It's not a bad idea. It's one of those quasi-objective metrics. I was talking on another podcast about when I started my first business 30 years ago. I left a $60,000 a year job, and we're going back to the late 80s, early mm-hmm. 90s. So I don't even know what the equivalent of that is today, but it's a pretty decent salary. Plus, yeah. I had gold-plated benefits. And the very first year as an entrepreneur, I made 1000 bucks a month. And it was all I could do just to be able to take that money out of the company. Right. I was working at a substantial discount. Now I was able to replicate my salary by the third year, which is good, which is something that you should shoot for, which isn't to say if you don't replicate your salary by the third year that you have failed in some way. 
because there's obviously many other metrics with which to measure success or failure. But step back to the beginning of time and say to yourself, think about the genesis, the origin story. Why did you start the business in the first place? What was what was the purpose of the exercise? Were you running away from something? Were you running to something? My first business, to a large degree, I was running away from cubicle world. I just couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand working for people that, there's no way to say this without sounding like a cavalier or a cretin, but there was no way I could work for people that I felt were my intellectual inferior. Just as simple as that. I know it sounds awful, but it really was. I could not in my 20s mask my contempt, right? There's a concept called the Peter Principle, that famous book yes. written back in the 70s. People, and the log line for that is that people advance to their highest level of incompetence. There may be some people who are listening to this, thinking about the situation that they're in now and realizing that, oh my God, I'm just, I'm surrounded by that. And we're made to feel bad sometimes in the world that we might be, dare I say, better than someone else, as if that is somehow pejorative, right? Somehow a negative. And I'm not talking about people who are walking around with a inflated idea of their self-worth. That's not the point. But you should have a healthy idea of it, one that's constructive. Yeah. But anyway, circle back to the money conversation. So where do you start? You start where I started in my course, which is you spend the first third of it figuring out where you are. How much money do you have? What's your balance sheet look like? Right, Your net worth statement, which is your personal balance sheet. What's your income look like? What are your liabilities? What's your cash flow? And then you get a snapshot of that. And then you look down the road and say, okay, what are my, I'm making air quotes, contingent liabilities. So what does that fancy term mean? What's waiting for me down the road that I need to prepare for? This stuff is really not sexy at all. And if you go on the internet looking for the money courses and the money stuff. Mine, it's very nuts and bolts and it's very old school. What people gravitate for and the guys who are you know, super successful with are the ones who are showing bikini models and Ferraris. They're selling a dream and a lifestyle. Yeah. This can be yours. Make more if money. If you follow my little program here, this will be yours. And my attitude is if you do all the hard work and put all the time in and really make a plan, there's a chance that can be yours. But first you got to figure out, is that really what you want? Do you want a Ferrari? Do you want a fancy car? Because I got to tell you, I've never owned a Ferrari, but they suck. <laughs> they're, they're awful. They're as high maintenance as you can get, and they're terrible to drive. But they sure look pretty when they're in the parking lot. <laughs> they really do. I live in southern Spain on the coast of Salsa. It's pretty much little Britain. And the Land Rovers are everywhere. Mm. And I know people with the classic ones, now that's a whole different game. That's a different but game. The new ones, it's just so funny because I do know it's like the typical thing is, yeah, I have so many friends that we go meet at the cafe right across the street from the you know, repair <laughs> center. Like, yeah. I heard somebody once described the Land Rover as a rich man's fourth car. I think that's really accurate. Pretty much, hopefully there's not too many Brits out there in the audience, but they don't have a reputation for building very good machines. They just didn't. Going all the way back to the original Morris Garage, right? The MGs, the Triumphs, all the British Leyland cars. First thing you do when you buy one of those is buy a really nice torque wrench. 
Sorry, I just I just offended an entire aisle full of people. But I think even they would admit easy to offend now. They elected someone who had no political credence with no experience. Oh, as Americans, we have no idea what that's right. We've never experienced (laughs) that ourselves. Another country, a complete (laughs) buffoon and a neophyte, right? We know their guy had some experiences. Not saying a good politician, (laughs) but he at least was a politician. Yeah, when they, yeah, their clown at least actually knew it was a job. We don't want to go down that rabbit hole. No, it's, no, too, no, it's too easy to lose the whole conversation. Well, are you kidding me? Everybody will click off the podcast if we start riffing on American politics. So we'll say, I didn't sign up for this, dude. Stop. Oh, no. <laughs> Where can I hide my money? No. All right. That's the crypto. Uh, okay. So I do want to. Okay. All right. I, I, I was on a I was on a thing that I got pitched from TradeStation about crypto because I run this this passive investing mastermind and we've talked a lot about crypto because everybody's younger yeah. and they're all trying to convince me of the validity of crypto. So I got a thing from TradeStation saying learn about crypto webinar and I go on the webinar with this guy who the guys in my group my little mastermind group said oh yeah that guy's a, a big muckety muck and he comes online and five minutes into it he says he's coming live from the Cayman Islands and I'm like <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself oh the Cayman Islands let's see the land of sunny skies and shady people but I didn't click him off I could have I listened and he made some interesting points I can't say that I agree with them but they were well thought out which I'll give them, you know, credit for that. Clearly, some thought went into them. I just happen to disagree with them. I do want to point out, and we haven't even talked about your technical charting, your technical analysis capabilities, because I've heard you discuss it and I've seen some of your results, except for one. Well, hold on. All right. Maybe, let me set this. Spring of 2018, a certain Bitcoin, maybe it had fallen from its high of. 17, 18,000, whatever it did in that early late 17 period. Mm -hmm. And someone made a statement that you were willing, eat a cigar or pay $1,000. I think I I said I'd send you a box of cigars. Yes. Hold on. Before, let's set the scene here. So it's the spring of 2018. I'm doing a presentation at Austin. You're in the audience. We've got about 40, 50 people in the room. Yeah. And I wear a suit like a big dummy because when this particular is group this wears a suit. No, I've been to Bangkok before. So this okay. is my first one in Austin. Yeah, I, but you yeah, know what? I had gone to the year before. So yeah, right after I did. Yeah. Right. You've got to you've got to dress for success. So anyway, <laughs> so I'm, I'm setting the scene for your audience. So I've got two decks and I've got all this stuff. And everybody had Bitcoin because it had gone parabolic up to 20,000. And then it had fallen off a cliff, had a waterfall decline. 8,000, I think, was that about the time? something Somewhere around 8,000 at the time. It had made made a a huge fall. So I I put the chart up for the group and I asked, and I didn't identify it as Bitcoin. I just put the chart up and I asked everybody in the audience how many people were familiar with charts. And maybe Two hands went up, and I think your hand was one of them, and it was like wavering, waffling back and forth with it. And then afterwards, I asked how many people have money in crypto, and just about every hand went up. And then I revealed to the audience what the chart I was showing was Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. right? No one recognized it until I actually uncovered it. And then I made my famous prediction that it had fallen down, and somebody asked me, where do you think it's going? And I said, it started at 1,000. I think it's going to go right back to 1,000. And I think it was at about 8,000. 
think you were a little and, more pathetic on that. And then it didn't. It did not go to a thousand. It Six. went down to four thousand with the low that? point. Okay. Yeah. It goes low as four thousand because I actually before this call I went and checked it, <laughs> and it did go down to four thousand. And now, of course, it's at. Then, of course. It over the ensuing two years or whatever, it went parabolic back up to 50,000. And I don't even know what it is today. It's been a year and a half in that four to eight. It literally didn't move out of a It didn't move. It traded that range. I even posted the trade. I actually had suggested a trade during that thing where I thought it was going to trade up to the low eights. And it went, not to pat myself on the back, because I was obviously wrong that it didn't go down to a thousand. But there Mm -hmm. was a trade there. But there wasn't an investment there. There was a swing. I still don't understand Bitcoin or any of the crypto world. The way it's being sold to me by the people who I know and that I trust who do this for a living, the greatest analogy they can come up with is it's the same as gold. It's just a store of value, but it's a long way off from having day-to-day liquidity or being considered similar to a fiat currency. It's a store of value. Now I have gold, I have physical gold that I actually own and that I actually have probably it's proximate to me. I have gold coins, but my father bought them back in the early 80s with my college loan money, which I wrote about in my book. And he died and left them. And so I have them. He paid 200 bucks for them in the early 80s. And now gold's up to about 1800. So it's a decent enough ROI, but there's no dividend with it. And if I want to do anything with it, I have to convert it into dollars. Well, Bitcoin is very similar to that. Another of these ICOs and these other coins. It's a store of value, but the only value is the fact that people will actually actually converted into dollars. The gold has intrinsic value because it's gold and I can make stuff with it. I was wrong in my prediction. Now, here's the interesting thing. You watch these people on TV, you watch these experts, and I've never in the years, and I don't watch them anymore, but in all the years that I watched them, I never heard somebody come out and say they made a wrong call. It's fun. There are services that will take experts and match up their, you know, when it used to be the newsletter or the mailing letter. The money, like, a, like a money Snopes. This is what I, Jim Cramer predicted, and here's actually what happened. And what's funny is the process you put into it, charting, I've tried and I realized it's beyond a very basic awareness. I just didn't have much interest. So I looked at mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm good at making things happen from nothing in a digital space, but the rest of it, but I like how you use that process because in having, it's like anything else in the world, there's no guarantees, but it is a way to structure risk and evaluate opportunity that gives you a framework that I don't think really exists in most financial planning. Look, you're right in the fact that the charts are are far from perfect. And I generally use them for entry and exit points. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of professional traders. I know guys who are really good professional traders who could look at the chart and not even care what the instrument is and tell you whether it's tradable or what to trade or not. It could be cocoa futures, it could be gold, it could be something Amazon stock, yeah. whatever it might be. It chart is a chart is a chart and they don't care. They have a couple of indicators, Macy D histogram, they may have a force index. Usually I tell people three indicators is the max. Anything after that just leads to 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 paradoxical conclusions. So keep it simple. But ultimately, unlike someone who's going to trade directly from the chart, I want to know what it is that I'm trading. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go 
on Edgar, and I'm going to look at what certain trusted sites are saying about it, and I'm going to look at P.E. ratios and all of these things. It's really important to kind of know what it is. And I may go into looking at the footnotes on all of these things. It gives me a sense of, I'm going long. I'm a long trader. That means I need to be bullish on the fact that this company is going to do well. Now, in spite of what I may analyze from a fundamental standpoint, the stock can still tank. And it can tank for reasons that don't have anything to do with the fundamental numbers behind that stock because people are emotional. And a little piece of bad news comes out about a particular stock, and all of a sudden, people head for the hills. They distance themselves from anything that's negative. That's human nature. But the really good investors will recognize when the crowd is being foolish, and they'll have the wherewithal to buy it on discount. And that's how I look at it. I look at it like, you know, the market's down a thousand points. The crowd has decided to put the market on sale. I don't know how long the sale is going to last. I got to wait and see. But I got money on the sidelines, and I've been waiting for a little bit of a correction. And when it corrects to the point where I think it's overcorrected, I'll wait for the recovery, and then I'll buy back in. I got patience. I can wait. But it's just like a store that all of a sudden is for whatever reason, putting something on sale. It didn't change from yesterday. Yesterday, they sold it for 50 bucks, and today, they sold it for 25. What changed? Their perception of the value of that product based on the data that they're getting from out in the world changed because the product itself is exactly the same molecule by molecule that it was the day before. (laughs) Right? Same exact piece. In looking at that and then doing this, We've talked about looking at how you're taking the next thing, how you're looking at evaluating where you are, what's the next step, do you learn, why are you learning to do this, how other people should be looking at understanding where they are. How do you define success for yourself? For me, it's always been about freedom. The freedom to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Now, with freedom comes great responsibility. So if I wanted to go play 36 holes of golf every weekday from now until the rapture, I'm free to do that. I I am. There are no shackles on me to prevent me from doing that. But I would never do that. In fact, after a while, you start doing something, some leisure time activity too much, and it becomes a job. You want to keep it fun. You want to keep it interesting. You don't want to oversaturate what it is that you do. I think everybody's experienced that. That's the old saying of too much of a good thing. So you got to keep that in perspective. But I'm also imprinted by the idea. It's the old Pink Floyd, The Wall, where it says you can't. I use the quote all the time, you can't have your pudding until you eat your meat or something like that. That kind of Catholic ethos that says you got to earn your leisure time activities, right? You don't get to rest on your laurels just because you might have made bank or done this doesn't mean you're off the hook from having to earn that for the rest of your life. And that, I think, is something that people lose sight of. And you have to have purpose. Somebody sent me an article one of my clients a little while ago that said basically that the one common element between all successful entrepreneurs is that they have purpose. And just making money can't be purpose. It has to be greater than that. You have to have a greater purpose. People trying to run businesses that it's all about how fast they can make some money are usually, one, not that interesting. And then two, (laughs) you know, True enough. And I've seen this time and time. And I think within some framework, it's becoming easier to get something 
bad to a base level. You can make money doing crap above what you would expect maybe 20 plus years ago when we were coming up around and creating things. It was like, oh, crap won't work. It has to be really good. Now I see people making good money, crap, but you don't see them taking that next step or in very, sometimes, but very rarely, do you ever see them creating long-term businesses? Because there's nothing there. It's built on a house of cards. Now they can still get an exit, right? Yeah. Because there is an insatiable appetite for, I hate to say crap, but for less than stellar businesses that get absorbed by larger businesses. Somebody was talking to me the other day, on a different podcast about Mark Cuban. They didn't know the 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 genesis, the, the backstory of Mark Cuban. I'm old enough to know. And broadcast.com was what it the was. Broadcast. They sold that business for $5 billion to AOL. And within three years, everything that broadcast.com had gone by the buy. And they pretty much had to write off that entire investment. Broadcast.com was designed to be able to broadcast out-of-state basketball games over the internet, right? But the problem in 1999 or 1998 or 1997, when we're talking about the ISDN line, was there was nowhere near the bandwidth in order to do that. The tipping point in my estimation, based on my research, was 2010. 2010 is when all of the digital nomads and location-independent businesses, that is their birth date because that's when there was enough penetration of broadband to allow these businesses to exist. But before that, you were too hamstrung, right? Every every advancement, and I wrote this in, I have, a, I have some PDFs that are on my websites uh, that are freebies. And I wrote about how everything, the 1800s was the railroad. It's a network. Once the railroad achieved critical mass, that network allowed an enormous economic expansion all the way up through the Industrial Revolution, right? The 20th century was a couple of networks, the telephone and the Eisenhower Interstate Highway System. Yes. Again, networks that coupled people together. And now we've got the internet, broadband and, and cable and whatever access it is in the 21st century. Another network. The people who became fabulously rich in the 1800s were the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies who actually built the railroads. But since then, the ones who have become fabulously rich are the people who have used the networks. Verizon is a provider. AT&T is a provider. They're a stodgy old. They make a little bit of money, but they have not set the world on fire. And I've owned them for full disclosure in the past. Who's made the money? Amazon, Facebook, Google. Fang Stocks, Netflix, yeah. Google. They don't own, none of them own a stitch of the actual network. What Amazon owns, which is their, really the whole company is AWS, right? They own yeah. the servers that sit on that network. And it's a money machine. Facebook, who I detest, but I own a lot of their stock. They're a money machine. They're a mendacious money machine, but they're a money machine because they sit on that network. So those entrepreneurs that are out there, the combination of this incredible superhighway, this incredible network, and the ability to utilize inexpensive SaaS products to build almost anything is how you can get a million-dollar business with an 85% margin. And you can make real money. And you can do it quickly. Yeah. You know, that's incredible. It's easier than ever, but I believe it's that same pyramid as we've always seen. 
you know, it may be easier to build a business and get to that kind of like above survival level, but I believe it's the same percentages that kind of keep going up and up. There's just more of them because there's now more businesses, but you're still 95% likely to not hit a million. You're, mm-hmm, if sure. you pass a million, it's another 80% of businesses fail or bounce back between the three and five businesses. It's something like all the businesses that pass 3 million, and I know this quite well because I've done it multiple times now, <laughs> pass 3 million, fall back down over 80%. So it's again- Yeah, the, the glass ceiling. And the problem is that until they get probably to the five or $10 million level, they're not attractive enough for someone to purchase them. The world is awash with money. I say that all the time, but the thresholds for you to be attractive to a large entity that will buy you, pay you cash, and not care if your business succeeds. You know, what AOL did, one of the most poorly run entities, that I think there's a whole Harvard mm-hmm. Business School study on how AOL mismanaged almost everything they did from that up to Time Warner and everything else. But we won't talk about that. That is crazy stuff. But you have to ask yourself as the entrepreneur, what's my exit strategy? And mm-hmm. am I trying to grow this thing to be a $5 million business so I can get a 10X multiple and get FU money out of this? Or am I looking to just grow it up to a certain point where maybe I can get a decent payout and then go start something else, but I'm not going to have generational wealth? Or do I want to just grow the thing up and keep it as an annuity, get somebody else to run it and have it be a little bit of a mini cash cow? Now, Mm -hmm. the last scenario is a tough one in the internet space because what goes around comes around. If one of the things that makes it so appealing is the inexpensive and almost non-existent barriers to entry, but it's your greatest asset and it's also your biggest liability because everybody else has got that same advantage. And there's Mm -hmm. always going to be somebody, it's like being a professional athlete because every year they draft a whole bunch of 22-year-olds in whatever league you are, and every one of them is just as good as you and younger. A little right? less injuries. Yep. <laughs> and a less and what? Yeah. And what's their job? Their job is to take your lunch away from you. And now everything that you were doing where you were clawing away, trying to get market share and doing all this stuff, and you got yourself to the point where I'm now a mature business, right? And then you turn around and there's a dozen other people that are nipping at your heels because they don't have any barriers to entry either. And they're going to come in and maybe they learned the new fancy programming language, which kicks the butt of the old programming language that you used. And now it's going to take a half a million dollars to do a rewrite to just to keep up with the people who were trying to take your lunch away. From. And you ask yourself why people don't want to be entrepreneurs. Oh, heck, I'll just go work in cubicle world, collect my salary, get my two weeks vacation. I don't want to deal with all that stress. I mean, I can't see as I blame them. No, I can't do it myself. And I can't at this point now, so far into this journey for me, I can't even put myself back into that thought process. But yeah, that is an interesting risk profile. The flip is cubicle land, as we've seen faster and faster. The risk profile, there's no, what is it? The rise of the work, right to work states. There's no contracts. There's no guarantees. I've always espoused the theory that, that working for other people is much riskier than working for yourself. I've always thought that was the case. And what we've seen is this metamorphosis over the last 18 months where those jobs that disappeared are never coming back. 
Mm-hmm. But they have been replaced by new jobs. But mm-hmm. the problem is that the people who got downsized on the first go round are not qualified to do the new jobs that have spawned. So people who used the opportunity during the pandemic, which is in the rear view for the most part now, they use that opportunity to read the tea leaves and, and do a little mini pivot on their own. They'll discover as we come out of this that they're actually in the catbird seat. Because we're now at a point where it's a seller of talents market. We're seeing it in all aspects of society now. In the housing market, I had to pay over ask to buy this house back in December. The automobile market is prices have jumped significantly. I'm trying to convince my wife to sell one of our cars. I got four cars and one of them's not suitable for this dirt road, but she doesn't want to because she's sentimental. Yeah. For me, it's just a business decision. I can make probably an extra 20% on it. I got baseball cards. I, you know, Part of my moving, I'm going through and I'm finding my vintage baseball cards. I guess I'm guilty of the same thing. I'm a little bit sentimental about them and I don't really need the money. But looking at it now, I don't think prices will ever be higher in my lifetime. I should, yeah, I should push away my sentimental side of it, and I should sell them. If I was purely looking at it from a a business standpoint as an arbitrage opportunity, buy low, sell high, or sell high and cover low, one or the other. I love that saying, and we all do, but the reality is you're not really switching asset classes. Correct. You're going from from a collectible or an automobile or real estate into cash. And it's this whole thing with like entrepreneurism because- I know people, and I hear this argument all the time from people in my life and people who I care about. Entrepreneurship is risky. It's It goes up and down. It's, yes, it does. But when you plot it out, my risk, it does this up, down, left, right, center, but it has a pretty nice long term. Yes, any given thing could be straight down compared to a lot of other roles. And well, how- you're As an entrepreneur, it's a, it's a great analogy. If you're looking at it from as a trader, as an entrepreneur, you've collared your trade. You've got a band. It may still swing wildly within that band, but you have a band where out in the real world, you're collared, but the bottom of your collar is, I have no more job. I'm at zero. Unless your business is just the worst, most poorly run business in the world, like a stock, they rarely go to zero. There's always some value there, even if it's just for parts. I've sold businesses Um, for parts for a lot of I have too. But when you get that call that says you're no longer employed here, there there are no parts. You're you just went to zero. Right. And it's horrible. (laughs) You do. And maybe you get a little unemployment or a little severance or whatever, but otherwise it falls off a cliff and you go to zero. Now, the reality is that you need to have a particular mindset and a personality to be an entrepreneur. I believe you need to have a a certain personality and such to be able to manage your finances and grow your money yourself. Because the whole purpose of my course and my book was to empower you to do this yourself. The truth is there are a lot of people who don't want to do this, who don't want to touch it with a 39 and a half foot cattle prod. They just don't want to do it. Yet, those will be the same people who will complain when they can't grow their assets or when they hire somebody who does a crummy job with it because they don't want to do it. You can't have it both ways. Either take responsibility Mm -hmm. for it and take your lumps because you will or give it to somebody else to do and stop complaining. It definitely is because the noise so much is about other people doing it. Oh, we make it easy to, and then it's like, the fine print once again. 
the one percent management. Look, look at, at Robinhood created a, a, a platform, right? And now they're right. catching all sorts of grief about it because they made it really too easy. They made it too easy for Names. you to blow your money up. They handed out sticks of dynamite and big lighters to a whole generation of people who had absolutely no experience and how to deal with that kind of ammunition. And then they pulled back and said, whoa, we didn't like the fuse. We didn't do that. We just gave out the raw materials for people, right? We just gave them a platform. We're, we, we take no responsibility for that. If people want to put their money in there and then turn it into spinach, that's not oh. on us. I mean, this may be one kind of caveat. I agree with you to a large degree, but I do think there was a point, though, that they gave so much ammunition out that, for lack of a better term, the unwashed, for the first <laughs> time in any significant value, impacted the well-to-do. It was the hedge funds. Some of the meme stocks actually were impacting hedge funds that were backed by financial institutions. Sure they were. And all the freezing happened not because the unwashed people opening accounts were losing money. That happened because the people with money previous to it were like, uh, we're losing money. This is evil. This is evil. Now, yes, the amount, the opportunities that individuals were losing money after and during, but the kind of that big spike of this is evil happened because the real players, like these people are the only people with money, but because they got hurt. They did. And you know why they got hurt? Because they mismanaged risk. They figured yeah. we're going to, we're going to over leverage this. We're going to, we're going to do 150% short interest on this thing. We're just going to bulldog the market. And some smart young people figured out that these guys were so overly exposed. Not only were they overly exposed, but their positions were so unwieldy that there was no way that they could unwind them in a timely That's enough right. fashion yes. so we could do the short squeeze to end all short squeezes. The dirty little secret about hedge funds, and again, I wrote about this in my book, is that mm. very few of them make money. Yeah, Most so of them, you could do better easily. But that's not their purpose, right? To a large degree, many of them are simply a tax avoidance strategy. Because what do rich people do? You look well, at the tax system in this country. I've been having this debate. The same guy from the from the My New Club who was talking about the Social Security, I had a little text thread with him. Because I say tax the rich. And he's, oh, why would you say that? Bah, bah, bah. And it's because they have all the money. That's why, right? Mm -hmm. Look at a guy like Warren Buffett, right? Warren Buffett is worth about $50 billion or something, some staggering number like that. And a couple of years ago, when Trump refused to release his tax returns, Buffett came out and, and released his tax returns, right? And he put them out for public view. And you know what they say? He, he made the previous year, he earned $10 million. Not mm -hmm. too shabby, right? And ask yourself something. Wait a second. This guy's worth $50 billion, it must have taken a lot of work to earn so little. Just the interest on the interest would be much more than that. So what's going on here? These wealthy people have realized that America has never been able to tax assets. When this ProPublica thing came out, which I wrote about it a few weeks ago, and they released the tax returns showing that Bezos and Buffett and Musk paid no tax, paid no federal income tax. 
The biggest outcry from Congress was the fact that these people's private information was released, not the yes. fact that they hadn't paid any taxes, which is a joke that shows you who's bought and sold. In America, because we've never, other than the estate tax, we don't tax people's assets, you have the ability to create a fortune like Bezos, $200 billion. When you consider that the first 20 years of your life, you don't make any money, and the guy's 56 years old. So over the course of 36 years, he was able to accumulate $2 million. million. How yeah. is that even possible, just based on the passage of time, if, if you had a working tax system? And the reason is very simple, is because we don't tax the appreciation of those assets. So what do rich people do? They drop yeah. it in a hedge fund, they let it grow, and then they borrow against it. You then they write off the interest on what they borrowed, they spend all that money, none of that ever shows up in any meaningful way as taxable income. And if they lose money through the hedge fund, they could give a crap because they made out like a bandit on the other side. Who gets left paying taxes? The little people, like Leona Helmsley says. It's a giant legal way for you to simply avoid, and there are acceptable losses in it because the uptick on what I made and what I'm making, the tax avoidance more than offsets that. So I don't care if the hedge fund loses money. Could care less. Within reason, obviously. But if you follow any of the hedge funds, you'll see some of them have lost staggering sums of money. And yet they're still alive. People still give them their money. Somehow. All right. Henry, thank you. For everyone, we'll have down in the show notes links to a site just, yes, because he's not taking on students for his course, you should still be checking out his newsletter with everything specifically about how not just a left-right or whatever type of position on these things, but like diving into, when he says he researches them, he really gets into the tax structure and what type of impact it does have. And if you want to, you can reverse engineer that if that's what you lean to and build to it. But, if you want to send um, me nasty notes saying how I was wrong about something, I'm more than happy. I have a thick skin. Yep. I got no problem with people calling me out if they think I'm full of, you know what, no <laughs> issues there. I have fun with it. The news, yeah, and I like to make sure that I'm constantly, I get a lot of joy out of just throwing value out into the world, taking a little bit of a atypical approach to things, trying to dig a little bit deeper and come at it from a different angle. Because if you want to read the cookie cutter stuff, just read the cookie cutter stuff. That's yeah, that's fine. There's enough of that. Yeah, there's enough of that. If you want complex, a little bit quirky, and a little bit of a I'll give you a New Yorker attitude, even though you're a little bit of snarky attitude. I have snarky, I, yes. I make make no bones about about being a little bit irreverent and a little bit snarky. But it has to be entertaining too, because if it's dry and boring, no one's gonna read it. It's tough. My book is 432 pages long. It is it's a beast. But you don't have to read it all in one sitting. Read it 18 chapters. Read a little chapter. Get some knowledge. I give it away for free. If you go to henrydoss.com, you can just right there on the, I just retooled my little personal page. So it's right on the front page and you click on it and you get a coupon for a hundred percent off. I can't do any better than that, but I can't make you read it. I can give it away. I can't make you read it. <laughs> you put it on your bookshelf and make it look good. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, AJ. Oh, it was fun. I hope you really enjoyed that conversation. I know it was a little all over the place, but Talking with Henry is like drinking from a fire hose. He is so intelligent and his breadth of knowledge is quite large. Really quickly to take out of this, sign up for his newsletter. We'll have the link down below, but he 
goes into such great detail about very important things that are going on in the world, but specifically how it's impacting us. And he uses so much more colorful phrases than my white bread upbringing allows me to fluently use. He just wrote a kind of a breakdown of what's going on in the UK. And his description of Boris Johnson is a work of art. So I'll just leave it there and you'll have to go find it and read it because it is worth it. Second, as we talked about, get your financial structure in order. I took his course, as I mentioned numerous times a few years ago. And while I still have, you know, he's damned me, it's faint praise. I wasn't the worst, but that's not saying much in his course. But I have to say, since I've worked, since I took that course and since I've talked to him, I now really work on my ongoing financial reporting, my statements, understanding where I am, and broadly outputting where I want to be going, both for my companies, myself, for my family. And this has upped my game hugely. And I know I have a lot more to learn, a lot more to do, and to become more sophisticated. But just by taking the basic concept and getting there, it's upped my game. And I know in talking with other entrepreneurs, it's so sad, but a lot of us really, ah, that's, it's good to know I have money, but I have so many other things to do. Once a month, at least figure out where you are. It will help you across the board. And that I learned from Henry, and Henry brings it in because Henry's biggest point, as Henry goes on, he says he's looking at doing new things, going into real estate, deciding what he's going to do with his course. The idea is understand where you want to go. What we do as entrepreneurs, earning money in general, finances, businesses, however we do it, it has no inherent value other than for giving us the ability to do the things we want to do. And the better we understand where we want to go, the better we can use these resources we're building as entrepreneurs to get there. And that's something a lot of our previous guests have talked about and we've dived into. But with Henry, he just makes it so clear. It is part of this ongoing journey. Look, you do it because it allows you to do the things you want to do. You don't need a gazillion dollars on a private rocket ship to get off the planet, at least now. Hopefully the planet will be around for a little bit longer. But it does help to have resources. Where and how much, that's up to you and your decision on where you're going in the journey. But Henry really does push understanding where you want to go and working towards that. So look, go check out. We have the links down for his newsletter, for his other materials down below in the show notes. Um, and as always, our social handles are down there. Please follow us. Let us know how well you plan your own financial well-being on top of your businesses. I've had difficulties over the years. So as I said, from Henry's urging, I'm getting there, but I have a lot to go. So let us know. And thank you for your comments, criticisms, suggestions. Look, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening today. And I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.